Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. A reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. One of the important ways we learn about our changing climate is to look at the historic record, whether in ice cores or in the crop journals of farmers. In the 1880s, a group of Harvard students summered on Mount Desert Island, making scientific studies of flora and fauna and recording their findings. Log books from those students are the inspiration for a new collaboration, hoping to blend research from historians, scientists, and citizens to help us anticipate and adapt to climate change in Down East Maine. And I'm so glad that um, some guests can return to Talk of the Towns. We're glad to have Katherine Schmidt of the Skudik Institute with us, Lawson Wilson of A Climate to Thrive, and Rainy Bench of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being with us. Um, perhaps, um, again, you're... you're um, familiar with the radio show, but maybe not all uh, guests have heard your past um, performances on Talk of the Towns. Maybe you could introduce yourselves a little bit and the organizations you represent. And rather than to cite the mission um, of your organizations, maybe you could tell a story that kind of illustrates how your mission comes alive in people. Sometimes that's a, a neat way to, to help people understand. Rainy, could we start with you? Um, a little bit about your background and then the, the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Sure. So um, I've been the executive director for the Mount Desert Island Historical Society for just over a year. And it's been an interesting <laughs> period of time for sure to take uh, leadership over an organization. And uh, prior to that, I served on the board um, and have a long background working in museums and small museums specifically. I've been at the Abbey Museum in downtown Bar Harbor as a curator, the Seal Cove Auto Museum as the executive director, and then now with the Historical Society. And I love the Mount Desert Island Historical Society for a variety of reasons, but one is because they really enjoy making connections between the past and the present. The Historical Society is passionate about how to make history relevant in people's lives today. And if you think about how many times over the past year we've said, this is unprecedented, or we live in historic times, or, you know, some sort of comment that references the strange occurrences and unusual occurrences that have taken place over the past 18 months, uh, some political, some environmental, you know, across the whole spectrum. And the Historical Society is able to look back through our records and through scholarship and public programs and exhibits, really tease out the elements that inform the different things that we're seeing taking place around us today so that we can understand how we got to this place. And for me, knowing how we got here helps me understand how to go where I want to go next. And so to be able to facilitate those types of conversations and experiences is something that I am really so grateful to be able to do as, as my job. 
Sure. Lawson Wilson of A Climate to Thrive, a little bit about your own background and, and maybe about the uh, Climate to Thrive as an organization. Sure. Uh, so my name is Lawson Wilson. It's a pleasure to be back on Talk of the Towns. And I'm speaking on behalf of A Climate to Thrive, which is a local nonprofit focused on climate action and local climate solutions. And over the next hour, you'll hear a lot about uh, resiliency and it's close to a climate to thrive's heart. Um, it's it's what we are trying to build within our community um, is the ability to respond to a changing climate. And one of the things that I think a lot of, about or a good, a good example of that is our summer internship program, where uh, last summer we had six interns, and we focused a lot last summer on. Uh, climate justice and understanding the relationship between uh, sort of intersectional uh, in, uh, inequities and the challenges uh, that climate change pre- presents are made made greater and increase the disparities of education or socioeconomic or cultural or racial uh, divides and and the education that the interns provided for our whole community around climate justice last summer was really important. We're just launching our summer 2021 internship program. And, uh, and I guess I'm excited and uh, to just to discover what the interns uh, learn and how they teach us. And I think that it's a really great model of resiliency for us to be able to learn intergenerationally and that uh, young people are able to teach old people as much as old people are able to teach young people. Great, great. Catherine Schmidt from um, Ascutic Institute, a little bit about your background and and the the institute itself. Uh, I'm Catherine Schmidt. I'm a science communication specialist with Ascutic Institute at Acadia National Park. Scudic Institute is a nonprofit partner of Acadia. We're the primary partner in science and education, and we um, manage the Research Learning Center campus in Acadia National Park at Scudic Point. And we're really a center for inspiring science and learning and community in this rapidly changing world. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is by engaging people in science. Um, so science isn't just for scientists, but everyone has a role to play. Um, And just as an example, it's spring, um, so warblers are migrating right now, and we're um, carefully documenting the arrival of songbirds, and we really need, we can't be everywhere at once, and so we need other people to help us. And we have sort of a continuing call for citizen scientists to help us document the flora and fauna of the region. And just as an example, so in the last five years, as we've been um, sort of having this continual call and using uh, mobile applications like iNaturalist and eBird. We've had 7,880 people contribute their observations of birds and flowers and insects and lichen and mosses, Um, 60,000 individual observations of almost 5,000 species um, that we are able to analyze to help document change. 
Oh, that's great. And and I'm going to count myself as one of those because one of your colleagues reached out to me and said, when when are you first seeing fox sparrows return? And so I've got some data on when they started and when the last time I saw a fox sparrow, I think they've moved on to, to northern climates. But that what a great example, Catherine, of, of how citizens um, like me and many others, so many others are contributing to our understanding of what's happening on our planet and in this particular region. Um, well, Lassen, I'll turn to you in terms of, of what are we up against in terms of climate change? I understand you've had some conversations with folks and in, in the last 20 years, what have they observed about changes in our climate? Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm going to start by zooming out a little bit and providing a very short and very broad um, overview of some of the climate science. And then I'll start talking more locally about uh, about what we're seeing here on the coast of Maine. Uh, but I think it's helpful to remind, to clarify what we're talking about when we talk about climate change. And specifically we're talking about human, uh, sort of climate change as a result of human activity. And even more specific than that, it's the changing climate as a result of burning of carbon. But that's really the, the simplest. And of course there's lots more complex concepts to it, but, um, but I want to make sure that I underscore that the connection between burning of fossil fuels, which are carbon-based fuel sources, and that that emits carbon into our, into our atmosphere, and the more carbon in our atmosphere, the warmer the climate. And warm is a difficult word because it's not always warm. It means, you know, it, not every day is warmer than yesterday, and not every season is going to be warmer but that when you map it over a century or even over a decade, we see universally around the globe, a warming of climate. Climate is different from weather. Climate is uh, a sort of aggregated or an average experience of um, moisture and precipitation and temperature. And weather is a localized specific moment of those factors. So. That's some of the climate science, some of the climate language that I think is important. When I talk about warming, one of the things that we're seeing in the Gulf of Maine is the rapid warming of our ocean temperatures. The Gulf of Maine is warming, depending on exactly the science, but it may be, or the, the study that you're looking at, as much as seven times the national average. And it's one of the parts of our world's oceans that are warming the fastest. And what that means for our local economy is that the lobsters are moving offshore and we're seeing that affect the, um, the economy. And we're seeing that affect the lifestyles of fishermen who are shifting the, uh, the ways in which, in which they fish for lobsters. And they have to go have larger boats that go further offshore to collect more lobsters on each trip. And that's making it harder for small uh, operations or fishermen who want to fish a small number, uh, it's hard for them to compete. And climate change is impacting life on the coast in lots of ways. The sea level is rising. And what that uh, looks like on a day-to-day -day or a month-to-month -month basis is increased storm surge. And so the high tides are higher. And if high tides coincide with large storms, we're seeing increased damage to 
the seashore through erosion or the depositing of rocks on roads and trails. I was just talking to somebody who uh, says that seaweed shows up on the shore path in Bar Harbor almost weekly. And, uh, and that never used to happen. We're seeing uh, more extreme weather uh, patterns and faster changes in weather. And so we can go from very dry uh, summers to very wet winters very rapidly. And that increases both the risk of large fires and the risk of large floods. And the last piece that I'll talk about is water. And uh, we talked about sea level rise, and that's important. But the other piece of water is our drinking water and the effect that climate change has on uh, destabilizing our aquifer, which makes our drinking water more concerned. Mm -hmm. These are all complicated, complicated uh, issues and require addressing or require solutions on every scale, both the individual local scale inside my house that my behavior needs to change, but also on the municipal, the state and the federal level and the global level. And it's that kind of thinking that I think uh, segues into this project and this landscape of change project, which is about using history to understand our present and, and build a resilient future. And that's a different way of decision-making than some of our municipal bodies are used to. Um, some, it's a different way of decision-making for our individuals to be thinking not just about what's good for me and my kids, but what's good for my kids' kids and their kids. And how can we think about decisions now and the effect that they're going to have 50 and 100 years in the future? Mm. Thanks. And thanks for that introduction to uh, the Landscape of Change project. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with um, Lawson Wilson of A Climate to Thrive. You just heard from um, Catherine Schmidt of Scudic Institute and Rainy Bench of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Uh, Rainy, um, what led to the creation of this um, collaborative project called A Landscape, uh, Landscape of Change? So the Historical Society produces an annual journal called Chibaco that we print and send out every year. And usually it's a series of scholarly articles produced by different authors, you know, anywhere from 10 to 14 articles in, in addition. But this year we wanted to do something special and we worked with Catherine Schmidt to, instead of having a series of articles, reprint the logbooks from a group of students that were here from Harvard between 1880 and 1890. And we were going to republish the first three years of the law book, log books um, in an annotated form. And that project was really exciting and really different. But for me, as I mentioned, what really gets me excited about my work is how to tie history to the issues surrounding us today, why history matters. And so I sat with this for a little while and thought, you know, so what? Is an average going to person going to pick up those logbooks and make their own meaning from them? Or can we sort of help facilitate conversations and direct people to the things that we think matter from, from these records, these early historic records? And I sat down with Jerry um, Bowers from the uh, Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory, and we were sort of tossing around some different ideas around it. And she mentioned that we hadn't really ever had a discussion and a really in-depth look of sort of the history of science on the island and how science has shaped this these spaces and what we do with that information and how we engage with it. And 
that sort of led me to thinking about myself, who is not a scientist and I'm not, you know, knowledgeable about climate change and the impacts it's having. But as a citizen and a mother, these are things I'm concerned about because I see them affect my life and I anticipate them affecting the lives of my children. And I thought, you know, what better for someone who doesn't know but wants to become informed to create a coalition of informed people that I can then introduce this topic to new audiences and um, and people who may not otherwise be engaged with it. And I was really fortunate to have existing relationships with uh, Acadia National Park and with the Biolab. Uh, Catherine, as the editor for the Chewbacca edition this year, was obviously a natural partner. And then it was just really fortuitous that her work with the Skudik Institute overlapped in a lot of different ways. And then... Um, College of the Atlantic was able to come in to help us with student internships and some of the the pieces that we needed for just organizational support. And A Climate to Thrive was a new relationship for the Historical Society. We had never had an opportunity to reach out and work with A Climate to Thrive and Lawson's enthusiasm and immediate understanding of how his organization, which is forward-thinking, could really relate to my organization, which is sort of backward-thinking in a way that we could um, approach problem solving in a really different and creative way. And so everyone that we approached to be a partner on this project saw how it directly related to and advanced the mission of their own work and felt passionate that this collaboration could do something different and unique that would, that would bring us all into sort of a new way of, of working together. Mm, that's great. Um, Catherine, you're um, in many ways responsible for um, a focus or a spotlight on the Champlain Society, this group of Harvard students and their journals. Tell us that story. How did you first learn about those journals and, and uh, how did you begin to un- unearth the story? So I first learned about this group of students in 2009, 2010. So over 10 years ago, I was um, working at the University of Maine at the time, and I had a small grant uh, through Scudic Institute, actually, uh, to research and write the story of Sergeant Mountain Pond in Acadia National Park. And Sergeant Mountain Pond is the first lake that was, um, that sort of formed on the landscape that became Maine at the end of the last Ice Age. Um, And while researching this Ice Age story, I stumbled into this legacy of geological work on Mount Desert Island, which led me to this much broader history of science in Acadia. Um, Acknowledging, of course, that the Wabanaki people have their own way of interpreting and and their own knowledge about the landscape. Um, And then in sort of the uh, 18th and 19th century, we see sort of tr- naturalists and then later formal sort of scientists coming to the island and using this incredible landscape to test theories and to understand a little bit more about how nature works. And it just sort of opened up all of this other activity that had happened. And Acadia National Park is a project, is a partner in this project. Um, and I kind of work with them to tease out this story of this incredible legacy of science in Acadia. And as part of researching this, I I don't remember how, like what database I was in or what card catalog, but I found these Champlain Society notebooks at the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. 
And I went there and the staff took them out of a closet and they brought me this box of these notebooks and they're, you know, and I've done a lot of archival research. You have to wear your white gloves and you take the plastic and the little shoelaces and you untie these wrappings and you um, can look at these, these notebooks from 1880, 1881, and they're marble covered notebooks with lined pages that are full of 19th century ink script, you know, cursive handwriting. And their are notes, they're daily notes written by uh, a group of young men who were 17, 18, 19 years old. And they um, were led by Charles Eliot, who was the son of Harvard president, Charles William Eliot and his brother, Sam Eliot. And Charles was sort of the leader of the group and his family had been coming to the region vacationing since 1871. And in 1880, his father and his stepmother were going to Europe. And so his father said to his sons, you guys can have the yacht, you can have the camping gear, you can go to Maine for the summer, but you got to do some work while you're there. Um, and so, so Charles kind of got a group of his friends together at Harvard and he said, hey, we're going to go to Maine for the summer. But if you're going to come, you've got to commit to doing some kind of natural history while you're there. And so this group of about seven um, ultimately, 12 of them sort of signed up and said, yeah, we'll do it. Um, we're on board. We'll do a little bit of work while we're there. And they formed themselves into departments. And come June, they sailed uh, to Maine and set up their tents on the shore of Somme Sound. And they proceeded to go out every day in search of plants and birds and study geology. They monitored the weather. They looked at fish and water depth and temperature and marine invertebrates. And we know all this because they wrote it all down in these law books. And Immediately, it was like that the moment, right, where I think you hear about other people in the archives where they they find this thing and it's like this beam of light is shining down on you. And it's like, you know, you found treasure, right? You know, you found treasure. And so it just kind of stuck with me. And I just I haven't put it down since. Um, and so uh, that's a sort of brief overview to the Champlain Society. They came back every summer. So we sort of, we have this very long record and they have meeting notes and all of those departments, botanical department ornithology department had their own reports and notes of their observations. So that's a story of, 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 of students who were kind of had the opportunity, but they kind of got on fire about this research. Now, not all of our historic record is all about scientists or budding scientists. We have a lot of historic record um, in, in other ways. Um, Rainey or Lawson, how, how else do we learn about the historical record of, of, of our climate? Um, farmers, I suppose, um, fishermen, um, where else can we look to find some of the data? Farmers and fishermen, that's absolutely right. And also, um, you know, in harbors and harbor masters who were tracking the tide levels because they were concerned about what ships could fit through at what times, depending on ledges exposure and things like that, um, have been informing sea level rise information. Journals, we have diary entries where, you know, this may be not considered hard science, but I know, for example, there's a couple of entries in journals in the Historical Society's collection where someone says, she wore her winter coat in August to meet someone at the ferry, you know, and so we have an indication of it's not great data, but it's information about that. We have, um, this is something I think Catherine has been looking at with the Skudik Institute, but records of fog. So people talking about when they can't see the island or they're fogged in. Uh, and we know 
or we're starting to understand that that fog is being affected by climate change. And so how is that ultimately going to weigh in on what we see for the landscape of the island? And so understanding those historic patterns of fog can come from lots of different journal entries and diaries. And then what was really sort of fun and not directly related to this project, but as we dove in, we started to become aware that there are similar projects taking place with um, actually really significantly huge organizations. So our small organizations have bid off a project that is being managed by um, the Monterey Bay Aquarium is doing a seaweed study for nitrogen at levels in the ocean based on Victorian pressings of seaweeds um, that they can measure from. And then um, there's one other study that we had looked at similar. I think it was sea level rise related to shipping um, records uh, off the coast of England in the 17 and 1800s as they were trying to map those. And that was through you know some pretty large very well-funded organizations that have the staff to do this research. And it was fun to see that, first of all, this type of partnership and this type of research really is something that is important and recognized as a tool for understanding the world around us. But also that um, no matter how big your organization is, you can have an opportunity to contribute to this work on some level And that helped us sort of define our scope so that we weren't trying to bite off all these different topics at once, but create a really strong foundation for which future studies could be incorporated into the model that we're building. Catherine, did you have something to add? I did just about sort of sources of information. I think as, as historians and scientists, we kind of privilege data and written information, but um, we do have a lot to learn from our Wabanaki friends and sort of the oral traditions and stories um, that document change over millennia. Mm-hmm. And Lawson, again, you've you've had some recent conversations with fishermen. Um, they might not have written things down, but certainly um, maybe their catch their catches or whatever. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think that one of the through lines or the threads is that everybody is experiencing change and has been for a long time. And so for the fishermen who used to be able to fish essentially from their dock and they could go out for half a day and say pretty close to home, they now need to follow the lobsters who are moving further offshore and further north. And uh, and, and that change is, is happening every year. It, it gets worse and worse. Um, so, so um, how how do you imagine putting all this together? Um, you're beginning to um, assemble um, different sources of information from your partners and their constituents. How how will you bring it together to make sense of of what you're finding? What's the the process? And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the different uh, components. But um, Rainy, how how have other organizations kind of begun to collect this information and make sense of it? Yeah, and um, Catherine, feel free to jump in here because um, you have some of the more specific later decade um, pieces. But you know, when the Historical Society first reached out to these partners, we were coming with the Champlain Society records specifically. I mean, we could have mined and we could still mine further into the archives, but to get us started, we had this really clear, already transcribed, already available um, set of, of logbooks that had information in it. 
So we brought on an intern to start pulling out the specific pieces of each. Um, actually, it was a, a, an Elliott fellow, more than just an intern, uh, who spent six or eight weeks going through each of the logbooks and pulling out the specific data sets that could be used. And then um, we decided that, you know, that would be sort of the earliest benchmark that we would start with. And then Acadia National Park, the Skudik Institute, the college, and the Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory all have successive decades of data that can be folded on top of that. And I'll let Catherine speak a little bit more about the types of records that are in those organizations. Um, Great. Sure. So the Champlain Society um, focused on certain areas. And, and as a group, um, we decided to, um, as Rainy had mentioned earlier, narrow it down um, to data sets that we felt were comprehensive and that we had snapshots for. So the initial work previous to this project was digitizing all of these logbooks and scanning. So scanning and then actually transcribing thousands of pages that took a couple multiple years um, and then editing the, the logbooks, um, annotating them to provide context and then taking the data and putting it into sort of spreadsheet form and, and attaching locations to it so it could be mapped. And so that took a lot of work. So you're talking about a PDF of an old book or report that has text in it that may be digitized, but you still have to kind of convert text into data. And there's been a lot of work. People like Glenn Middlehauser at the Maine Natural History Observatory has been doing this work um, for years. And so we were able to build on um, the work of other people who, who have recognized the value of these data sets and convert them into a form that our partners at College of the Atlantic could then map and put on a map. So it was a lot of working in Excel um, and figuring out what are the key references. So right now we just sort of have some key layers of this 1880s, 1890s data set with the Champlain Society as sort of the highlight, but we also pulled in other data from um, other people who might've been out collecting. So um, there's other sort of databases that compile that. So for example, the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology has a lot of specimens. And so you can search for Hancock County and kind of find other specimens and pull all that information together so that we can see, visualize layers of change over time. So um, we now have a, a website where people can see where birds were being collected in the 1880s, who was seeing them, um, what was being seen in a particular month of the year or week during the summer. Um, and, and so it was just sort of a lot of work of, of updating and converting information into modern formats so that it's accessible um, to as many people as possible. Mm. And then the other piece is like, not just setting like what you can see at which season, but um, I think Catherine's been really cognizant of making sure that the weather records really line up with and are available for that same thing. So what was happening more broadly, you know, when you first start seeing species come in or when you first start noticing that they're leaving, um, invasive species is, you know, another opportunity to look at, like when do you first start seeing new populations of birds or plants or insects entering into these areas and directly connecting that to what you see with air temperature, moisture, or sea level temperatures informs a, a much bigger understanding, a more comprehensive understanding of why those things are happening. So that the goal is so you can't just sort of write something off as being an unusual circumstance, but you can tie it to this happened at the same time that the sea level reached this 
temperature and we had a heat spike on land and all of a sudden we had these butterflies come up or whatever, you know, I'm the novice on science. So Catherine's probably cringing <laughs> my example, but um, yeah, that's the type of thing we're looking for. So that as you um, really like seep into all the different aspects that you're looking at, you can understand the way that it's a web and networked together. You can't just pull one piece apart and say, but this is, you know, different. It's all interconnected. And I think what it takes I'm just going to interrupt and, and, yeah. and remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We have a fascinating conversation about a project, a collaborative project called A Landscape of Change. And our guests um, include Catherine Schmidt of the, Skudik, of the Skudik Institute, Lawson Wilson of A Climate to Thrive, and Rainy Bench of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Uh, go ahead, Catherine. Well, I just wanted to connect to something that Lawson said earlier about this common thread of of everybody experiencing change. Um, and, you know, and I've seen this shift, you know, when I started writing about climate change, it was still something that was happening in the future. And, and if that's not, that's no longer the case. Um, and so Lawson was talking about this common thread of everybody has a story and everybody has experienced it. And, and I think the landscape of change is project is, is just encouraging people to continue to pay attention and that it takes, you know, because people in the 1880s and the 1920s were paying such close attention to the Mount Desert Island environment, we, we now can, can understand how, that, how the place is changing. And it just takes that kind of, um, not necessarily um, rigor or a lot of time, but just, just pay attention. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the components of, of this collaborative project, and then we'll talk about some of the, the hopes that you have for what happens as a result. Um, as you've already mentioned um, the wonderful production of uh, uh, the Chibaco, uh publication that's coming up. Um, Rainey, if you want to get started with that, and Catherine, you're the editor, you can say, you can say something about that as well. Rainey? Yeah, so Chibaco is out and available for anyone who's interested. If you're not a member of the Historical Society, you can become one or you can purchase a, an edition just by reaching out to us through our website. And that has those first three years um, annotated by Catherine, um, which is really a fascinating look. And it also, what I love about it is it has images taken by the members of the Champlain Society of the island in 1880 to 1883. And so it's a really unique look at the trails and the spaces and the forests and the sea from their perspective, along with their words. And so that's one aspect. And then the second that uh, directly is being launched by the Historical Society is in June, we have our new exhibits on our campus in Somesville that will open. We'll have two new shows, one in the main building focused on summers in science and wonder and the history of science on the island. And then the second in the Selectman's building is really looking at climate change and how we are understanding the changes taking place around us and the extent to those changes founded in historic knowledge. So we're, we're, we're trying to constantly keep those two things at the forefront of people's minds. Um, there's some public program activities that you can check on our websites for calendar, you know, information about what those might look like. Um, but the Scudic Institute and the park are doing more of the public program interface, uh, and so is Climate to Thrive. So I'll toss to them for that piece. 
first let me come come back to Catherine. Um, you've you've certainly dealt with the the uh, um, logbooks before. What, what's what's most exciting for you in this new publication of Chibaco? Um, what's different? What, what what will people learn from reading this this new publication? The volume of Chibaco really provides a lot of context and orientation for the reader. Um, so there, the previous um, documents, which are still available, were sort of accurate transcriptions. So archival level transcriptions that match visually what is on the page, um, which are valuable to scholars, but they're not as accessible to someone who just wants to read something like a narrative. And so we've eliminated line breaks and made edited them for consistency just to make them easier to read and to understand. And then um, provided also annotations. So I want to um, just give a shout out to um, Maureen Fournier, um, who volunteered many, many, many hours um, working with me. Um, she did, she digitized pages, she did transcription, and she helped research a lot of the annotations. So where there's an obscure term or some historic reference, we just kind of provide a note to add clarity to that. Um, and then also Maureen and Tim Garrity wrote um, an introductory article that kind of um, gives a snapshot of Mount Desert Island in the 1880s. So in addition to the scientific work, these logbooks really show what island summer life was like on the island in the early 1880s, which is still kind of early in tourism development. So you can see that growth just in the first three summers of logbooks. You can see how more and more people are coming to the island. Um, and so I think it will be of interest to both historians who are interested in sort of the social life of the Champlain Society as well as, as scientists. And it, and it has the illustrations. So we included photos and maps and, um, and then put it all together in one publication. And the kids are funny. Like that surprised me when I first really started reading them. Like a lot of times you, as a historian, you want the personality of the writer to come through in letters or correspondence or journals, but so often it's not, you just don't get humor when you're writing to yourself or you're writing a correspondence. It's not always, you don't, you don't maybe get humor, but these kids were so funny and sarcastic and playful in a way that makes them so much more relatable than, than just, you know, a group of students doing natural history on the island. You know, it can sound so bland or, or just maybe even um, two-dimensional, but they, their, their personalities come through so strongly in, the, in these journals. You've got some uh, public lectures coming up over the over the summer, I presume. Anything that you want to highlight um, in terms of listeners to talk of the towns that they should be watching out for? Well, I would say at this point, um, the best thing to do is to go to any of our websites, um, aclimatethrive.org, um, and our events listing includes the most up-to-date schedule of events for landscape of change and other climate change related programming throughout the rest of the summer. Great. And you've mentioned some interactive maps. How, how, how will people access those and what will they show people or how will people engage with those maps? So this is a GIS based tool, geographic information systems. That's what GIS stands for tool developed by the college of the Atlantic um, and a real sort of nod to, or a, a tip of the hat to Jasper White, who has been working um, tirelessly uh, for the last many months to pull this together as a COA student. 
And again, you can get there um, through the College of the Atlantic's GIS website um, and through a Climate Thrive's website and MDI Historic Society has a link to it as well. And this is a tool that allows you to see, to visualize a map of MDI and all of the historic observations that uh, Catherine and lots of others have compiled. And so you can actually look and see where on the island were different birds spotted in the 1880s. And, and then again, throughout the last uh, century. So if, if as a birder, I go out and I see warblers um, in a particular location, um, I can go back to the historic record and say, were those warblers around um, in the 1880s? Uh, that's pretty cool. And we're so Scudic Institute is specifically asking people to go revisit these data sets. So um, we have a call for a sort of um, uh, choose your own adventure citizen science effort throughout this year. Um, so from now, so um, most of our observations are from the summer because that's when the Champlain Society was here and when a lot of visiting scientists were working on the island. Um, and so we're especially interested now in spring of when some of the birds and butterflies and moths that the Champlain Society and later scientists were observing in the summer, when might they first be arriving on the landscape um, of Mount Desert Island? And so we need everyone's help um, to, uh, to go out and try to find these species. And so hopefully people will um, visit the interactive map and either choose a favorite location. So there's a couple of hotspots certainly the Champlain Society camp locations, um, choose a location and maybe go re revisit it on a certain day and see if they can see the same things um, or just document what you are seeing in terms of the arriving birds and, and pollinators. So butterflies, moths, and bees. And we will have some scheduled events. So some sort of mini bio blitzes um, with Acadia National Park throughout the summer. And so those will be on Swedish Institute's event calendar, um, but it's mostly we're hoping that people will be um, inspired and help contribute to observations, which we will then be analyzing um, this fall to see what are the differences um, in terms of what species are here that didn't used to be here, which ones are no longer here that people found in the past. Can we see anything about changing abundance or location? Lawson, you've mentioned um, the word resilience as one of the, the hopes that you have um, for this project, that, that people will use um, this um, kind of uh, understanding of how climate has changed in the last uh, century or so and, and apply it to their own lives and their local public policy. Could you say a little bit more about what your hope is here? Absolutely. Uh, so Catherine mentioned earlier about paying attention and that is a really important skill, uh, a tool to have in order to building resilience, resiliency. So, so it starts there, paying, paying attention. There are two other important skills that I think the Landscape of Change project um, uh, hopes to, to teach, hopes to, uh, to impart on our community. And that has to do with uh, collaboration and connection making. So that's one skill, like our ability to make connections. So paying attention is important, but what's even more important or as important is being able to connect those observations that you're making with other observations. And that's both about being able to go out and see a warbler in June and recognize that 150 years ago, it didn't show up till July, or I'm not sure that that exact, you know, whatever that, that relationship is. So data over time. But then the other really important part is connections between people. And 
And can you can a climate to thrive, a forward-looking climate change organization, make a connection with the MDI Historic Society, a backwards-looking historic uh, organization? They're not backwards-looking. What are you talking okay, about? Okay, okay. Thank a, you. I'm glad <laughs> someone else defended that, not me. <laughs> Busted. I know that's not they're, they're Appreciation for history. Awesome. Yes. Yep. That's right. And and so that connection making is really important because if we're going to be resilient, we need to be collaborative. And then the third piece is about getting involved. And um, there are lots of ways to get involved. I'll cite one specific one, which is that every town in Maine has a comprehensive plan. And that comprehensive plan was written by your neighbors. It was written by citizens of the town. And it needs to be renewed every 10 years. And so either, so my request, my, my, my recommendation is to find out what the status of your town's current comprehensive plan is. When was it last written? If it, and when is it going to be written next? Make sure you read it and understand it and then get involved. Join the comprehensive plan team and think about the next 10 years of, of your town's preparedness for a changing climate. I think of, um, I think we did an earlier program on Talk of the Towns looking at Ellsworth's um, attempt to get ahead of some of the effects of um, uh, big storms, rainstorms, and re- really look at their culvert system, um, their drainage systems along roads, and say, okay, if we're going to experience change, you know, we better be ready. And, and they were investing in their infrastructure at that point in time. And this is probably six or seven years ago um, in anticipation of some of the effects that you're, you're, you've talked about here, climate change. Are there other particular ways that the, the, a comprehensive plan will be looking ahead? Uh, you've mentioned the, the notion of, of uh, burning uh, carbon-based fuel. That's right. Uh, how do we get away from that? It's a great question. So the... There's efficiency, which means reducing the amount of energy that you use. And that's through appliance upgrades and building envelope, which means your windows and the insulation in your house or your town hall or your library or your school, making sure that the on a day-to-day basis, we're using less energy. And, and then the other big piece is making sure that the energy that we are use is coming from a renewable source. And in Maine right now, the best, most accessible, most sort of uh, environmentally responsible renewable energy source is solar. And so being able to use solar electric energy that's generated right here in Maine by the rapidly expanding solar market is a great way to reduce your costs now and reduce the impacts of climate change in the future. Mm. Catherine, I know that um, scientists at Acadia are particularly interested in, in invasive species and there's probably some intersection in terms of climate change and invasives. How might this kind of research um, help um, scientists and policymakers deal with invasive species? Um, well, um, this effort to look at historic data um, for plants, um, because of the Champlain, starting with the Champlain Society and their botanical collecting efforts, the park knows that um, some species no longer occur here and that the new species that have come in since the 1880s are predominantly invasive species. Um, and so there is, and they tend to um, thrive in sort of disturbed habitat as well as warmer conditions. So they're anticipated to, to do better under changing climate than many native species and there's competition for native species. So 
certainly one of the things I think one of the best things we can do is, um, you know, use native plants in your yard, in your neighborhood, encourage any construction projects to make sure that they're using native plants, everything from grass and herbs to shrubs and trees. Um, I just saw a study that like the Norway maple supports like six kinds of insects, whereas a native oak tree has like 80. So it's really, really important to plant native plants because that's what's supporting the bees and the butterflies and the moths and the birds that have all co-evolved to be here together. So I think that's the biggest thing, especially that residents of this region can do. And I really like lots of what you said about connection. And I think um, that's what we try to do with citizen science. It's not just keeping your observation to yourself, but sharing it with others and connecting it with other people. Are there other examples of, of, of ways in which you hope um, a landscape of change, this project will influence people and institutions and, and communities? Any other things come to mind in what your hopes? What will be different after this project is, is, is over, probably never over, but um, when you've kind of celebrated the last um, big event, what do you hope will be different um, in people's lives? Well, I think in people's lives is, um, is, you know, visit, so many visitors who come here are here because they love the beauty and the landscape and the nature and the sense of place and to understand that it's not fixed and that Acadia and its land conservation partners have an ability to manage spaces from direct harm. So traffic, walking on trails, you know, overpopulation. But climate change is coming from outside of our borders. And so management of those impacts are different and require a much wider set of participation and common understanding and common solutions so that these spaces that people value can be preserved and, and that's information they can take into their own communities, whether that's somewhere else in the United States or abroad, wherever, that this is um, applicable across the globe across your wealth status, across your political boundaries, whatever. This is this is something we can all understand and that we can all work towards. And, you know, in terms of what's next, um, we just got this launched. So we've toyed around the ideas of what's next. And I think what uh, has been really exciting for everyone is that this was a base model that we can start building on to increase like this, this particular um, first um, iteration focused on pollinators, we need to look more comprehensively at insects, you know, so we need to go beyond that. We haven't looked at anything related to mammals or sea creatures. The biolab has a really important um, marine invertebrate catalog that is queued up and ready to be added as the next set of information to the map systems. We know that there's pressure on intertidal zones. And so what is happening and changing in intertidal zones, that study is, is, needs to be done again. And so if this is an opportunity to prompt that, uh, I think that that shows the power of this type of collaboration. Mm. Anything Lawson or Catherine you'd add in terms of what you hope will be different in, in people's lives as a result of landscape of change? I guess my hope is that as visitors who come to the island and drive past MDI Historic Society, we'll look in and people who people who drive by the Biolab or Acadia National Park recognize that these places are all connected and mm. that you can understand the marine life better 
by going to the historic society and vice versa. Great. Well, uh, just list the organizations um, again. If you want, if if you want listeners to get more involved, list the organizations who are part of this collaboration, and then we'll ask you a little bit about your own inspiration. What what inspires you about this kind of work, um, Rainy? Who else is involved besides um, the organizations represented th- this afternoon? So, um, College of the Atlantic has been a really key partner in hosting the website platform for the interactive maps. Um, huge shout out to Gordon Longworth, uh, who has been at the GIS lab instrumental in introducing us to Jasper White, who built the map um, based on all of the uh, research data points that were coming in. The Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory has been a really phenomenal partner in organization, marketing, publicity, helping to support design for the website um, and getting, you know, just the conversation going. Um, Abe Miller Rushing with Acadia National Park has been a great partner in terms of interacting with the general public and understanding citizen science and the impact of citizen science um, here on the island and as part of this project. So it's the six of us who have come together for this work. Great. And finally, um, uh, in the little bit of time we have left, what inspires you? Um, Catherine, what inspires you about this work um, that you're doing now um, as part of this Landscape of Change project? Um, I'm always inspired by the place itself. So I've learned a lot more about butterflies and moths and bees than I knew previously Um and, and birds as well, um, everything from their scientific names to when and where they were found. And so every time that I see a moth or a butterfly, um, it's amazing and inspiring. Lawson, what inspires you about this work? Well, if Catherine said the place, I'll say the people. And that it's, and Rainey just mentioned the sort of the six collaborators. And of course, there are six individual people who all sort of come with, robust boards of directors and volunteers and other staff and, uh, and and members who support our work. And, but at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, it's individuals who show up, meet with each other and say, this is what I have to offer. And I think that that uh, model is, is one of the things I, that has made this project successful and what I hope that we can replicate and export and expand upon. Mm. I would just add from my own experience that that is the key to successful collaboration, really appreciating the people that are part of that. It's not a, it's not a cookie cutter. This is about people really getting involved. And every time I've seen a successful collaboration, that's been at the heart of it. Uh, Rainy, what inspires you about this work that hasn't been mentioned perhaps? <laughs> well, that's hard, but I mean, I agree that the people, this has been the most rewarding collaboration I've ever been a part of. It's been incredible. Um, but I think ultimately what really excites me is um, we're all, pretty small organizations. You know, I, there are two and a half people who work for the historical society. And I just want to say, it doesn't matter how big or small or many resources or limited resources your organization has, you can make a difference and you can be, pool your resources with other like-minded people to really affect change. And I just want other people to feel that sense of possibility and partnership from this experience and be inspired to figure out how they can replicate that in their own spaces. 
Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant at 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Koranak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our uh, guests this, this uh, afternoon, uh, part of a Landscape of Change collaboration, uh, Rainy Bench, the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Lawson Wilson of A Climate to Thrive, and Catherine Schmidt of the Skudik Institute. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for helping to engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>